one other thing that I want to mention to you briefly this morning is that you may be aware that there are uh, new mask recommendations that are coming out for Sonoma County. Uh, you will hear from leadership this week in terms of what we want to do uh, moving forward with that. So just pay attention there and, and we'll keep you updated. <clears throat> what do you think of when I say the words conversion story? Now, maybe if you are like me, you immediately think about how you don't have much of a conversion story. I mean, 30 years ago, a guy standing on stage with tattoos would have a conversion story that was pretty dynamic. Today, it just makes him a hipster, unfortunately. So I was practically born in the church, and I have believed in Jesus from the time I was a little kid. And so therefore, when I hear the term conversion story and try to relate it to myself, I have sometimes had a hard time connecting with that. And, and to complicate that, at times I have heard really amazing conversion stories from people who uh, lived one, very, uh, one life that was very far away from God and then came to know Jesus and their lives were completely changed. And I have to confess that there have been times when I have listened to those stories and I have thought to myself, man, I wish I had a story like that. That is one of the dumbest things I could ever think. It's one of the dumbest things I could ever think. And it is in those moments where I think those thoughts that I later realize how little I appreciate about what it actually means to come to Jesus. Because you see, we were all lost in sin. We were all dead in our transgressions. We were all away from him. And no matter if you were born in the foyer of the church building or you were born somewhere else, we all need Jesus at every moment. But I feel like sometimes I have misunderstood the idea of conversion. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, uh, a friend invited me to go hear this uh, African children's choir sing at another church. And, you know, I, I grew up in the Churches of Christ, so I had, at that time, very specific ideas about uh, who was saved and who was not saved and who could be saved and what they had to do in order to be saved. And so I went to this concert, and it was beautiful, and the kids sang, and at the end, uh, the pastor of that church got up. I wasn't allowed to say pastor at that time, but, you know, that's what he called himself. The pastor of the church got up, and he uh, asked that if anyone wanted to be saved, that they would uh, stand up. And we, were, we all had our eyes closed, I think, and, you know, stand up and, like, put your hand in the air and accept uh, God into your heart. And me, as my young uh, Church of Christ self, heard him say that, and I think I did something like this. <laughs> and a guy down at the end of the row did this. He, he stood up and he raised his hand in the air to ask Jesus Christ into his heart. And I remember going home and, and just thinking, well, yeah, but he's not, you know, wrestling with that because it was the first time that I had been in that kind of a situation. I mean, I had heard that people did this, like the word on the street was that, was that this happened, but you know, it just, it was outside of my own experience, and I'm thinking, well, when is he going to be baptized, and when is all this going to happen, and when is that, and I completely dismissed the experience out of my knowledge for how these things should work. So about a month later, um, one of the college students brought one of his friends uh, to church, and, and I met him, and I thought he looked familiar, and 
he started going to Bible studies there with his friend and ultimately was baptized. And it was this same guy that I met that night that I had sat down the row from and had completely dismissed as being maybe sort of not really saved. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And in that moment when I met him and when I saw him grow, in those moments where I saw his faith grow and I saw him be baptized, I realized what an idiot I was. And I realized something else, that God does unexpected things in unexpected places through people that you would not expect him to do things through. We don't like to think of God in these terms, but God is unpredictable. I mean, you can know who he is, don't misunderstand me, and you can recognize him and his work in the world, but God is unpredictable. And the reason why he's unpredictable is that he does not do things the way we would, and that is a really good thing, that God doesn't do things the way that we would. And so I learned from the entire experience that I don't always know what God is doing in someone's life, and I don't know how God may be speaking to someone in one moment that I may not understand, and I may not know how God is going to grow that person into something that I may not be able to even see or know or comprehend. But praise God that he does those things, that he changes lives all the time, and that he doesn't allow me to decide if it works or not. Now, in the book of Acts, we are at an interesting time for this church. We, we saw things really uh, uh, escalate and turn sort of a bad direction in chapter 7. The church, which was formerly centered in Jerusalem, has been scattered by persecution. Stephen became the first to lose his life for the sake of the gospel, and it was not just the religious leaders who turned on him, as we had been seeing in some of these other examples with Peter and John and the apostles. It was the people. The people moved against him and dragged him outside of the city to stone him to death. And we see very clearly that there is one person who is coming to the forefront of this persecution movement. And his name was Saul. Now, we were introduced to Saul at the end of Acts, uh, at the end of Acts 7, I should say, at the stoning of Stephen. And Acts chapter 8, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, which is where we're going to be this morning if you want to turn there, the beginning of Acts chapter 8 tells us about him. And it says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He was introduced to us by Luke as a violent, active, resourceful persecutor of the church. He means business. He's going to people's homes. He's splitting families apart. And in a somewhat unusual move, Saul is singled out as the leader of the persecution. And I say that's unusual because, for example, in the persecution of Jesus, there is not one person who is labeled as sort of the point of the spear. In the persecution of, 
of, of the apostles or Peter and John, they are brought before a group of people. But in this case, Luke lets us know that Saul is the enemy of the Christian movement. He is the one that is making things happen, and he is finding Christians wherever he can and putting them into prison. And that is what makes what God does next so very, very unexpected. The story of Saul's conversion is one of the most well-known stories, certainly in the book of Acts, if not the whole Bible. And as far as conversions go, there is not another story that really compares to it. It is, it is singular in its nature. And, and as dramatic as the story is, though, it happens in the middle of some other important stories that Luke tells us, which showed not only what God was doing through Saul, but what God was doing in the world. So after the description of Saul at the beginning of chapter 8, Luke actually leaves Saul and goes on to tell a few different stories. He starts with a story about Philip, who's not a guy that gets a ton of play in the book of Acts, but we get a lot of him here in this chapter. And Philip went into Samaria, and he starts driving out, uh, casting out demons and uh, healing people, and he's later joined by the other apostles, and they're driving out demons, and they're sharing the gospel to great effect. And if you know about what the Jews thought about Samaritans, you would know that this is kind of a big deal. I mean, they've driven out of Jerusalem, so they have to go somewhere, and, and this Samaritan group is a group that was harshly judged by the Jews as a group of traitors and mixed breeds. And as such, even though they had a belief in God, they were not allowed to participate in temple worship and therefore have a proper relationship with God. So the fact that the apostles are out there converting the Samaritans to belief in Jesus is kind of a big deal because, you see, they're not Jewish. This, this is the big hang-up. That story is then followed by a story of Philip and the Ethiopian, which is perhaps one of the weirdest conversion stories that you have in the book of Acts. Philip was directed to leave uh, the Samaritans and to go uh, south, so he heads south, and on his way south, he comes up next to a chariot, and in the chariot is riding this Ethiopian official who apparently is reading out loud from the book of Isaiah. And Philip, as he's coming by, hears him reading out loud from the book of Isaiah. So he runs alongside the chariot and shared the gospel so effectively that when the Ethiopian official saw a body of water, he looked at it and said, well, why shouldn't I be baptized? That's water, isn't it? And Philip says, well, yeah. It is water. Let's go. So they stopped the chariot. Philip baptized him. And then as soon as he does, Philip immediately disappears and shows up somewhere else. Uh, and, and Luke throws in this funny sort of side note that people actually did see Philip in other places. Right? So he didn't disappear entirely. He just disappeared from that spot. Now, we have a pretty good description of the Ethiopian, but there are some fundamental things that we don't know. 
We know that he went to Jerusalem to worship, so it's possible that he was Jewish, but we don't know his nationality with any certainty. But in one commentary, they wrote that Luke's audience would have been fascinated with this character, this Ethiopian. In the Greco-Roman world, the term Ethiopian was often applied to black people. And the Odyssey uh, speaks of far-off Ethiopians, Ethiopians, the furthermost of men. So in other words, here is someone that their readers would have seen as someone from a, a very different place, the edge of the world, someone who, who, whose dark skin in that place would have, would have made him an object of wonder and admiration among Jews and Romans. And not only that, he is a high-level official. He's a powerful dude. So Samaritans are, are different and not accepted. This guy is from the edge of the world, and what do they have in common? They come to believe in Jesus. But these are very different people than the Jews that the early church has been surrounded with this whole time. So we have to ask ourselves a question before we get to the conversion of Saul. And the question is, what is the story that Luke is telling us? Now, we know that Jesus said that he wants the gospel to go how far? Everywhere, to the ends of the earth, that everyone would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But up to this point, to the killing of Stephen, where were they? In one place. So the persecution scatters them, and once they are scattered This is great, right? Once they are scattered, who does God put in their way? People who need to hear the gospel. And not only that, people who are ready to respond to the gospel. So Luke is telling us a story that that despite persecution, the gospel was going out with great power and effectiveness. The the Holy Spirit was moving, that demons were being cast out, people were being healed, Philip was being transported. And we also see this pattern of escalating conversions. Okay? So so first, uh, the conversion of the Samaritans was through, through healing and driving out demons, and then you have Philip being directed by the Holy Spirit, running alongside the Ethiopian, being transported somewhere else. The stories are getting weirder and weirder. And then comes the story of Saul. His conversion is not one miraculous story standing on its own. Rather, It is the next increasingly miraculous conversion as God is moving the gospel out into the world. Nevertheless, it's a very important story. So if you have your Bibles and you open them to Acts chapter 9, now turn to, or Acts chapter 8, now turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, so we come back to Saul. Remember, we we ran away from Saul for for a chapter, so now we're back. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem." As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So Paul... I'm going to call him Paul or Saul. I don't know. Just, just don't judge me for it. I'm going, to, we're going to, I'm going to try to stick to one. Saul's conversion is told in four scenes. Scene one, we have Saul breathing out murderous threats. And, and the thing that we have to realize about him is that he is not content just to stay in Jerusalem and cleanse Jerusalem of Christianity. He's now looking for letters to go to other cities to find people there that believe in Christianity, and then to take them back to Jerusalem so that he can put them in jail. And again, it is Saul rather than the high priest or, or um, the Sanhedrin that is the persecutor. And it's going out into the world just like the gospel is. The persecution is spreading. There is not really any discussion of Saul's motives or goals. All that we can say for sure about him is that he is committed to getting this thing done. And on the way to Damascus, we have scene number two. Saul encounters Jesus in what is probably one of the first come-to-Jesus moments. There was a light and a voice, and the voice from the light said, Why do you persecute me? And Paul was confused because who was he persecuting? Christians. And in his mind... What do Christians have nothing to do with? God. So he asks, who are you that I am persecuting? And his question was answered that by persecuting Christians, he had been persecuting the risen Lord Jesus. The conversion quickly turns from accusation, you are, you are um, uh, persecuting me, to commission, you are to go from this place and wait for direction. There was just one catch to the whole thing, and that Saul was blind. So this great change comes over him in this moment. This guy who was the tip of the spear in terms of going out, finding people, getting letters from the high priests to go to other cities, to take people back to Jerusalem. This guy who is so capable is all of a sudden helpless. He can't get to Damascus by himself. He has to have someone take them there. So they lead him by the hand, and he doesn't eat or drink for three days. And all of a sudden, this guy who was so powerful is like a little child. And this is the way that Saul enters the kingdom. Now, here's the thing, and I've, I've heard sermons about this before and read some things. We like to speculate about what those three days were like for Saul. What must he have been thinking while he was there in the dark, unable to see, not eating or drinking? But the way that Luke tells this story, he doesn't invite us to know what Paul was thinking. Instead, you get the distinct idea that all of this is happening to Saul. You know? Like, th this is, he was not on the way, but while he was on the way to take care of the way, he was put on 
the different road, you see. There is, as you can imagine, a complication with Saul becoming a Christian. Because those who believed in Jesus and perhaps whose family members had been dragged off to prison, they weren't sure what to do with this whole idea of Saul now believing in Jesus. He was the most unexpected choice. More unexpected than those filthy Samaritans. More unexpected than an Ethiopian traveling through the land. He is, was the enemy. The last person that anyone would think God would choose to take the gospel into the world. But in order for Saul to take the next step, God needed someone who could look at the bigger picture and would be willing to step in, which leads us to scene three, verses 10 through 19. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may again, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking food, he regained his strength. Ananias has a very biblical moment here, which I know it comes from the Bible, but just bear with me for a moment. God spoke to him in a vision, and Ananias replies with, yes, or in other versions, here I am. The voice told him to go find Saul of Tarsus at the house of Judas, and Ananias does what a lot of people who hear the voice of God or who get a vision from God do. He argues with him. I'm not sure this is the best idea. Do you mean this Saul of Tarsus? Because if you do, he's trying to arrest people like me. And, and I, don't think, I, I don't think this is the right move. The voice does not argue with Ananias. It simply repeats, go, and then comes the bombshell. This Saul is not simply an enemy or persecutor. Instead, now he is a chosen instrument. My chosen instrument. The noun instrument is used elsewhere in Luke Acts with the literal meaning of a container or a vessel. The calling of Saul, then, is not simply to believe in Jesus, which is what people are doing when the gospel goes out, but to be a particularly chosen instrument of Christ who will carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. 
The one who was out to persecute those who call on the name is now the one who will carry within him the name of Jesus. And in so doing, Saul joins a long list of reprobates like Jacob, murderers like Moses, and and odd characters whom God has chosen to carry out his work. And words like Jesus spoke in John 15, 16 ring true. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It is also interesting to note that as part of this deal, which, I don't know, maybe this encouraged Ananias to go talk to Saul, he says, I am going to show him how much he will suffer. So the road that God is putting Saul on is not an easy road. Because what do we know about the path that the gospel has to take? It's going to face opposition. There are going to be those who are going to stand against it in every moment. It is going to drive people apart. It is going to cause some to give up their lives. So this leads us to scene four in when Ananias did what he was told to do. Uh, Saul was healed and received uh, the Holy Spirit, and, and people may argue about who can be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, an important point just one chapter later, but it is hard to argue against God's acceptance of someone. You know? And sometimes the people who are taking the gospel out have to be convinced that this person can be saved. Uh, Even in the instance of Philip and, and the Ethiopian, it's not Philip, you know, he's telling the Ethiopian about Jesus, but it's not Philip who says, there's water, you should go be baptized. It's the Ethiopian who says, there's water, why shouldn't I? Almost as if Philip can't then come up with a reason why he shouldn't. When God accepts someone, it's hard to argue against that acceptance. And so Ananias went and he found Saul right where he should be. He, he touched him. The scale fell from his eyes. He was baptized, eating and drinking. So what now? There was reluctance to let Saul enter into this new life. After all, how do you just accept someone who was such an enthusiastic enemy? But Saul attacks his new life just like he did everything else. Starting in verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That's an interesting term there. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. That's also very biblical, is it not? So some things to note. It was not easy for Paul to change people's perceptions about him. But more than that, we see him immediately become the Paul that we are going to know down the road. And that is, this dude is not afraid. 
He's not. So he goes right back into the places where he knows the enemies of the gospel are, and, and he speaks the gospel with power. And he speaks the gospel with so much power that he is proving Jesus is the Messiah. He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And this leads people, as we have seen so far through the story, be true, to want to kill him. Because if you can't beat them, you don't join them, you kill them. I mean, this is the rule we're sort of seeing. Remember with Stephen, as we looked at him last week. They couldn't argue with him, so what did they do? They, they drummed up false witnesses and said these things about him until he was dragged out and killed. And in this dramatic scene, he had to be lowered over the wall in order to escape death. But we see him preaching the gospel with the same fearlessness that he had when he persecuted Christians going door to door. He's going to take the gospel door to door. He had one more hurdle to cross before he could really go and take Jesus to the world. Because again, it's not easy to go from enemy of God to God's mouthpiece, even if God is saying you are the mouthpiece. So starting in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So there was a problem, which was he, he didn't know the apostles, and all the apostles knew of him was what everyone else knew of him, that he was persecuting Christians. So he had to go and he had to meet with the apostles, but the apostles didn't want to meet with him. Because how do we know this isn't a trick? It's a trap, right? So Barnabas takes him, and, and, and he meets with them, and it becomes clear t- to them that, that Saul is actually from God. And then, I, I love this term, that he moved freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So he had kind of shut Jerusalem down for the gospel, but when he comes back, what does he do? He opens it back up for the gospel so that those who are there can hear him. And, and then he, he goes and he, he debates with the Hellenistic Jews, with those who uh, are, are know things about philosophy and the world and all of this different stuff. Uh, and, and we see him, we see this approach uh, in his writings later on. The, the thing about Paul is, is Paul is a really smart guy. He, he is a really, really smart guy. And so having discussions with Paul about the gospel, it's not like having discussion even with the, fear, the, the spirit-filled Peter. The, the, the spirit-filled Paul is a different animal altogether. And he is knocking down doors and showing everyone about who Jesus is. And the result of all of this is that the church was strengthened. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. All right. So what do we get from uh, all of this that happened? Um, We see some things and we learn some things about conversion. This is useful for us. As, these, as those who both have been converted to believe in Jesus and those who are going to come across those who do not believe in Jesus. And here's one of the most important things I think we can learn. Are you ready? Conversion, change of the rattle kind that was worked out in Saul, is something that Jesus does. It's not something we do. All of this that happened to Saul, this, this moment, this change, was a gift from Jesus to Saul. We also see that in order to go through an experience like this, there are things inside of us that have to break down. It involves a journey from self-confident independence toward childlike dependence. The one who knows so much must become as one who knows nothing, must be led by the hand, healed, and given a new identity. Because the longer we stay self-sufficient, the longer we will stay away from God. And the moment we accept our weakness and who we are is the moment that God makes us more than we were before. We also see that different people come to Jesus on different routes. There is no real way to do this, you see. And this is evident as we note that this conversion is set within the larger context of people in Samaria witnessing healings and driving out demons and someone just traveling on the road and Saul on the road. People are coming to Jesus in all sorts of ways. There is no normal. There are no five steps. People are coming to discover Jesus through experience, through teaching, through words, through life. And it is God who is doing all of it. It's God who is doing all of it. Because you see, there's going to need to be some more convincing This conversion, as amazing as it is, is actually not the most important one because there's a fourth one in the next chapter. There is. And the fourth one changes the world forever. Now, God uses Saul to build on the fourth one, but any barriers to the gospel that believers might have, any hang-ups they might have about who is in and who is out, all of that changes in chapter 10. And praise God for that. For God does things as he sees fit, not as we see fit. And where we put up walls and barriers, God takes them down. For the gospel is for everyone, because we all need Jesus. And we have all come from a place of death to life. We have all been saved by the miraculous gift of the body and blood of Jesus.